Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. This morning, a little history for you. We are going to talk about Mary, Queen of Scots. Why, you ask? Well, because there's still a mystery there after hundreds of years, and it has to do with her correspondence, the thousands of letters that she wrote to people during her 19 years in captivity. Well, it turns out that she took elaborate measures to kind of like hide messages in her letters, like codes that hadn't really fully been broken until recently. So what did some of these messages say? Well, our producer, Bianca Rega, who, by the way, also loves history, loves everything having to do with Mary, Queen of Scots, had a chance to speak with Dr. George Lassery, who's a computer scientist, and he's one of the lead co-breakers on this project. About two years ago, one of us discovered those documents in, uh, in the Bibliothèque Nationale de France, the French National Library. They put online quite a lot of material. Some of it is in cipher. And those documents were very interesting because uh, in the same collection, all the other letters are from Italy and also they are from the first half of the 16th century. And we know that Mary Stuart was active in the second half. So if you're a scholar looking for material about Mary Stuart, that's the last place you will go to to find that. So uh, we found them there. And then just for the fun, we decided to crack them. So at the beginning, we had no success because we thought they were in Italian. But half a year later, we came back to that. And then we were a little more lucky and we started to see fragments of text in French. And then slowly and slowly we started, I would say, to peel the onion. It's kind of when you decipher a cipher (laughs) of that complexity, then you have multiple layers. And every time you are solving, you are resolving some of the symbols that are not clear. You are reading more into the text and you are understanding a little better what it's about. And after we had peeled a few layers of that onion, I would say, we identified that those might be from Mary Stewart. So that was really a very exciting moment. So did you know anything about Mary, Queen of Scots before you started this project? So we are history buff, so we know a little bit, but uh, now we we know much more. (laughs) And I think historians also will know much more with those letters. (laughs) The context in which uh, we know about Mary Stewart, because we know that towards the end of her life, there was a plot called the Babington plot. And as part of that plot, Mary sent an unciphered letter to one of the conspirators. And that unciphered letter was captured and deciphered by Francis Walsingham, Queen Elizabeth I, a spy master, and based on this decipherment, then there was incriminating evidence in the letter, and then she was put on trial and they executed. So, because we are we are familiar with the cipher world, the cipher history world, then we knew that story about Mary Stuart, but that's all we knew about. So, can you describe what some of the symbols looked like, and were they similar to letters at all? Yes, so for ciphers, there were multiple styles of of symbols. Some were purely numerical. Some were uh, Arabic figures or Greek letters or or alchemy symbols and so on. So there was a very wide variety. And this specific cipher actually has about 220 distinct cipher uh, symbols. Uh, But when you look at it, all you see are lines of symbols you have no idea what they say. You even know, have no idea who wrote them, when, to whom, and where. So that, that was uh, the interesting part. And that's probably the reason that they were never discovered before, because no one knew they were about Mary Stuart. So only after you, dis- you decipher them, you can know that they are from Mary Stuart. So how were you able to decipher that, let's say, a three with a dot underneath it represented a T? Hypothetically, okay. the basic principle, and it's more complicated than that, but just the basic principle is what we call frequency analysis. So if you take an English text, then the most frequent letter will be the letter E. About 12% of the letters in, a, in an English uh, text are, are E's. And in French, it's, it's quite similar. And then you have the next most frequent letters, like uh, the T, the A, the I, the N, the S. So 
Basically, you try to match the frequency of the symbol that you see to what you would expect in a natural language. So th- this, is the, this is the idea of frequency analysis. So from there, you need to apply more, more logic, but this is, a, this is a good starting point. So once you were able to decipher these letters, like did they reveal anything significant about Mary's life that we didn't know already? We, we, we have started to show them to historians and they are astonished. From, from their point of view, there are biographies of Mary Stuart that needs to be rewritten because we have a large volume. We have more than 50 letters and some of the letters are very long. And especially Mary would write in cipher more confidential matters than she would write in letters that are not in cipher. So in the letter, we see many mentions of how she manages those communication. She has many ciphers. She has different type of cipher for different person she's in contact with. And she is very astute on how to, to, to protect those communication and make sure they are not discovered by the British authority. And especially the insight that I keep hearing from historians is that until now, there was a kind of a perception that Mary Stuart was a kind of a tragic woman, not a very smart one, uh, doing some mistakes and not very astute. And then she had a tragic fate and she was the victim of, of circumstances and so on. But if you, if you look at those letters, you will see a very intelligent woman, a very astute woman. She's very well connected. She has great source of information. She, she's not passive. She's trying a lot of uh, political maneuvering with France, with Scotland, with Queen Elizabeth. And this is this changed the perspective on, on Mary Stuart, especially on those years that she was in captivity. What was your favorite story that you deciphered? Uh, there are many, but the, I think there were there are two that for me are the most striking because if you look at those letters, their purpose is, is diplomatic. Those are not personal letters. Those are not a, a wife writing to a husband or, or something like that. But there are a couple of letters in which you see not only her political thinking, but you also see uh, the mother. She was separated from her son when he was a baby. She had to run. Uh, she was to escape uh, Scotland, and she did not see him for more than 10 years. And in one of the letters, she mentioned that she has re- received a portrait of James, her son. Her son at that time is now 13 or, or 14, and, and she writes that this portrait is different from the one she had so far. And of course, he's, uh, the boy is growing up, so he's looking differently, but you see this is painful to her. And there is another letter in which uh, she informs the French ambassador that her son, James, has been abducted by a rebel faction in, in Scotland. And now they, they have a hold on him and she's very worried about his fate and she's afraid that uh, he will suffer, maybe he will die. And, and you, you really sense not only the diplomatic uh, Mary writing to the French ambassador, but the mother very, very upset and, and feeling, feeling that uh, very anxious about what's going to happen with her son. So interesting, right? Like, I love history stories. That is Dr. George Lazary, a computer scientist in Israel, member of this group called Decrypt. They spent all this time trying to decrypt or decipher the letters that Mary, Queen of Scots, had been sending to people while she was in captivity. That it was full, they were full of coded messages, but it took them forever to try to figure out what those messages actually had to say. This is Mornings with Simi. It's like everybody's talking about space these days. As a matter of fact, we do have a space story coming up a little bit later on the show this morning. It's about a UBC astronomer and the origins of the universe. But when it comes to traveling in space, I think this is still an obsession for so many people. Our Scott Chance is with us now. It's We never stop talking about going out there. I think, yeah, and I love that we never stop talking about it because I think that it um, says something greater about us as a people, like as the human race, right? That we're always on the move? Yeah, that and like that we aspire to something really, really great. You know, like back when we first put man on the moon, I know that it was the United States that did it, but the world watched and took interest in it. And it was this like great achievement for mankind to show that we could set our mind to something and accomplish it. And I love that idea. And people often say, you know, oh, well, we should be spending our money on better things. And, you know, what a waste of money to go up into space and stuff. And I totally disagree with that. I think it's so inspiring and so um, exploratory and like, let's let's go beyond ourselves. You know, I guess you could argue that in the history of human civilization, moving around and adaptation 
has been key. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so we had no one has been back and set foot on the moon, as far as we know, since that original mission to the moon where Neil Young and Buzz Aldrin sat down. Well, shall we tell everybody that today is the day? It was July 21st, yes, 1969. Today is the day yes, thank you. that that happened. Yes, uh, the anniversary of that. And uh, now it, it seems, Simi, that the world is preparing to go back to the moon. And there's expectation that someone will again walk on the moon within the next two or three years. Artemis II, uh, which we know has a Canadian on it, is going up and going around the moon. It's going to orbit the moon. Uh, but we also have planned moon travel from countries like India, China, South Korea, Japan, the United States. Getting crowded up there. I know. <laughs> I know. And there's a bit of concern with that, Simi, that it's like, okay, so the United States is talking about going with the intention of like exploration and all of this wonderful stuff that we've been talking about. But what if a country like China got there first and planted their flag and said, well, this is our space now and we've just claimed it and what are you going to do about it? So there's some concern there that we do need to like stay on top of this, you know? I can see that. Yes. Now we talk about shows that we watch and I'm just going to put this out there. Have you watched For All Mankind? Uh, No, but multiple people have told me that it's like one of the best shows on TV. It is. Okay. I, I, I believe that deep in my heart. I feel like it doesn't get enough attention. And it is about the fact that what if the space race never ended? Right. What if it kept going? What would that have looked like? And it is fascinating to see that you're talking about all the good things about human because Scott, as we know, is a real, he's a, he's a Pollyanna. He's a glass half full guy, but there's also a a darker side to fighting over that new territory, what it means, you know, and what that means and the dominance and all the other things of human nature that, that happens as a result of that. Yeah, certainly. Because there really is nothing to stop a country from just saying this is ours now. And what, what could the future of that be? But there is like sort of a, an accord that is being started uh, The United States is sort of helming it up and has started that. And several other nations like South Korea and Japan have signed on to a part of that. Like, we're going to do this thing together. But it's highly likely that in the next couple of years, the talk shifts away from, hey, Elon Musk is sending people to Mars and we're back in a space race to do more than just land on the moon, but get there and really use it as a as a satellite space. Like from there. For, for what though? Well, to get to Mars, maybe we lay over on the moon and then we go to Mars from there and then to go beyond, you know, once we've sort of taken would, over and- Would you do that? Would I go? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Not to the moon. Would you go to Mars? Yeah, I think I would. Really? Yeah, I think I would. Even after watching The Martian? I mean, he got back. (laughs) He did. (laughs) Are you a a botanist at that level, at Uh, Matt Damon's level? No, definitely not. (laughs) But if it came to the point that I was like, I had the option to go to Mars on something like that, and I was at that level, I think I definitely would do it. You wouldn't do it? Uh, probably not, no. Do you, another great space movie, I seem to be obsessed with these this morning, Interstellar. I love Interstellar. It's so great. Yeah. It's so great. And that to me is about like why we need to travel to space because it advances you so much as a civilization. Okay. I, I'll buy that. I'll buy that. We, everybody seems to be getting on board this right now. So you are of the mind that, yeah, spend the money, go. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Who knows what we're going to discover up there? All right, there you go. Scott's the adventurous kind. I'll be the one at home watching it on TV. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Scott. You got it. That is our Scott Chats. Would you go? Do you, do you love the space race? Oh, share your thoughts with us. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in with Bob Palmer from the Vancouver Sun on this Friday morning. With We were talking about dates in history. This one's a little bit different than the one you're talking about, Vaughn. Yeah, a year ago today, uh, Joy McPhail, the NDP-appointed chair of BC Ferries and former NDP cabinet minister, she was installed in uh, late June. She had a first meeting with the new with the CEO of BC Ferries, Mark Collins. He was at the halfway point in a six-year contract, and in her very first meeting with Collins, she fired him. Uh, clearly on instructions from the Premier's office. McPhail was sent in to do that, so Collins was fired a year ago. John Horgan, then still the Premier, uh, 
told reporters, hey, if uh, you ask people waiting in lineups for the BC ferries, uh, they'd say, what took you so long to fire the CEO? The cost was over a million bucks, and here we are a year later, Simi, and I guess we'd have to ask people in the ferry lineups, hey, they've really turned it around, haven't they, under, uh, you know, you spend a <laughs> million and a half dollars to get rid of the CEO, and there's no more problems on BC ferries, are there? So I love your sarcasm. You know I do. <laughs> <laughs> but this is really not a good time for BC Ferries. Oh, man. You know, I talked to somebody yesterday who's trying to get over to Vancouver Island uh, from the mainland for family and travel reasons. And uh, she'd gone on a BC Ferries booking website. There are no reservations at all not available yet. on BC Ferries. Like, to, till July, the end of the month, right? And uh, over here on the island, I mean, people are, you know, you could, you could be like me and say that no good ever came of going over to the mainland, so what the hell's the problem? But hey, There's hey, all kinds hey. of people. I know, I know. <laughs> there's all kinds of people that have to travel for family reasons, personal reasons, business reasons. Uh, the commerce on the island is tied to it. So we're looking around for excuses. Premier David Eby got asked about it at a media availability yesterday. And he said, well, you know, first of all, it's unacceptable. Well, they seem to be doing a pretty good job of accepting it, actually, in the government. But anyway, it's unacceptable. And E.B. says he's talked to, he's given a real talking to, I gather, to Joy McPhail, or at least he tried to give that impression. Anyways, he's talked to the chair, the government-appointed chair of BC Ferries, that, you know, you got to do something about this. It's got to stop. So the immediate excuse, and I'm beginning to think at BC Ferries, Simi, they have an entire department in charge of manufacturing excuses for service interruptions, but the latest excuse is the Coastal Celebration, uh, a vessel about which there is little to celebrate, has been taken out of service. Now, the listener may recall that that was the vessel that was taken out of service that was the basis for all the excuses for service disruptions on the Canada Day long weekend. So it's out of service again. Um, we've heard different stories about it, but the main thing is the fix uh, didn't work. There's still problems. There's an oil leak, according to BC Ferries. So they've had to take the ship out of service again. It's got to go into dry dock, and they've got to figure out why it's still leaking, uh, why it still isn't working very well. And with, it's one of the main vessels on the Swartz Bay, the Tawasson Run. So eight, uh, four round trips a day, eight crossings, so 300 and some vehicles per crossing, uh, 1,500 passengers or so per crossing. Is it any wonder there's no space on BC Ferries? What they've been doing, Simi, is they've been bumping people who had reservations on that ship to other ships and other runs, and that's why no space for reservations. Okay, and, and this is unacceptable. Like I know politicians yeah. say it's unacceptable, but what are they going to do about this? Well, for one thing, they, they don't have any replacement vessels. So in the long run, I mean, there used to be a lot of grumbling that BC Ferries, you know, was spending an awful lot of money renewing the fleet. The, the ferry service didn't build a lot of new vessels for a while. All the ships were roughly the same age and they were getting old. And then uh, they started building the Spirit ships, which are everybody, everyone traveling on the island in the know tries to get on a Spirit ship because they're pretty reliable and they're bigger and they got more space. Um, and then, of course, uh, we had our wonderful adventure with fast ferries, about which the less said the better. And now they're just trying to keep up with the growing demand for travel and the difficulty attracting staff. You know, it's a big change in my lifetime, Simi. When I went to high school, which was, you know, a century ago or whatever it was, uh, in Nanaimo, everybody, like, to get a job on the ferries was considered oh, just yeah. a great job. I, I worked one summer on the ferries. You know, the pay was really good. The benefits were really good. If you went out and got a St. John's ambulance training so you could, you know, handle a rescue on the ferries, it was like a job for life and a really good one. And it seems now that the ferries aren't seen that way. And the government, through BC Ferries, 
has in fact entered into, they've reopened the contract, or they're going to with the BC Ferry workers, to try to improve the pay to attract more people. But I think they probably need to talk up the idea that, you know, the ferries are a good job, they're here to stay, the benefits are good. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, the government pays its bills, and so does PC Ferries. So I think there needs to be a change of thinking around it, too, about uh, the ferries as a, as a choice of careers. Exactly. All right, Vaughn, you're going to talk more about some BC politics. We don't usually have legislature news at this time of year, but there is some work being done. So, Vaughn, what's going on with that? Yeah, so when you walk by the legislature chamber in the legislature buildings these days, all the desks are out in the hallway, the floor is bare, and there are structural engineers climbing all over the place with measuring tapes and stuff. And what they're trying to determine is the carrying capacity of the chamber, which is 130 years old. And the reason they're having to do that is because the next election, the one set for October the 19th, 2024, so coming up soon, that election will add six more seats to the chamber. And the chamber, of course, was built, as I say, in the 19th century, uh, for designed for nothing like almost 100 seats. So you have to be sure that the floor can carry six more MLAs. They've already added a whole bunch of seats over the years. And this is an engineering problem. It's also a problem for the seating plan. Anybody who's ever looked into the place, and I sit there and look at it every day that it's in session, I'm looking at the way it's crammed in already. Where are they going to put six more seats? Well, yesterday afternoon, the Legislature Assembly Management Committee, which is the one with all party representatives on it, tackled the question, what are we going to do about the seating plan? And they made a decision. Oh, okay. So are they going to go with the um, just the seats the way they do in the House of Commons over in the UK? I know well, Mike Farnworth loves that idea. Yeah, I know. Farmers just thinks it's fabulous. He wants to put in benches like they yeah. have in the UK. And there's been jokes about putting in bleachers and giving all the MLAs little flags to wave like in a sports <laughs> stadium uh, or sit in each other's laps. There, there was a proposal from the uh, committee uh, in front of the committee yesterday, and the proposal did show how you could replace most of the desks that MLAs have with benches. Uh, or you could go with a mix of desks and benches. But the uh, people who looked into it said, you know, we don't have an awful lot of time to do this. The benches would have to be custom built. You'd have to tear everything out. You'd have to do an awful lot of work. And they said, we don't think there's enough time now. So they came back with a proposal to cram six more desks into the place. They're going to push the rows closer together. The old parliamentary thing that used to have uh, the desks were the rows were supposed to be a sword length apart, so that you know way back when uh, the the MLAs didn't get to fighting in the place in the British House. Uh, <laughs> right. No benches, no bleachers. We're going to go to more desks. I was looking at the plan this morning. It's going to be tough to fix six more desks in there, but they think they can do it. Cram them into the corners. There'll be even less space between the rows and the desks will be closer together, so MLAs will be able to look each other in the eye, opposition and government. Um, uh, there's a price tag for this, Simi. Oh, of course there is. <laughs> there always so, is, yes. $300,000, right? For desks? $300,000 to add six desks to the place. Now, the desks have to be custom built, they say, and they said, listen, uh, it, it's not, it's not $50,000 a desk, listener. It's only $20,000 only per custom built desk. They're not going to go down to Ikea and pick them up, right? Uh, $20,000 for custom built desks a piece, and the rest of the money goes to uh, changing the chamber and configuration and building platforms and all that. So that's where we're headed for it. Uh, and I guess, you know, think of it from an MLA's point of view. I mean, one of the big things you do in the chamber, government and opposition, is pound your desks. Oh, come how on. how the devil are you going to pound your desk without a $20,000 desk to pound? You know what? So, they seem to do a great job over in the UK of having a very vibrant and lively House of Commons with debate. Uh, and yep. they don't have desks. It can be done. Yep. 
Yeah, no, and it's true. And they don't even have desks, as you know, Simi, for like for cabinet ministers. What yeah. they have is you stand at the dispatch box and you speak and address the house, and then you go and sit down. And it's also been pointed out that really the only time all the MLAs are in there is during question period. The rest of the time during debate, both caucuses have a little roster, and you're on house duty, which means you're in there signing letters and pounding desks and listening to the debate, and the rest of you are working in your offices or wherever. So uh, it's a lot just to make the place functional for question period, but I guess we're just going to have to wait and see what it looks like. Um, they haven't, uh, you know, we, we were joking that maybe they'd put some of them up in the gallery and move the press gallery <laughs> off of the, its seating place, but that's not happening. They won't be in the speaker's lap. They're just going to make it go one more time. Yeah, exactly. And they're going to leave the idea of benches until the next expansion of the chamber. Which, the way things are growing, it's not going to be much longer before they have to do this again. No, they have to do it every sort of two elections, it happens. And the problem is, you could, you know, if you froze the size of the House, then you have to start expanding the size of the ridings in the north and the interior because you have to keep making room for the fast-growing metropolitan areas. Nobody wants to do that because, well, first of all, it's not really fair to the regions outside Metro Vancouver where the ridings are already the size of European countries. So that's why we keep adding seats and then keep adding desks. But the chamber has reached its capacity. I thought that last time. They better get thinking seriously about yeah. those benches because I don't think they can take any more desks in there. I know. They're just kicking the can down the road. Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to have our check-in with all the things that have been going on down in the United States for the past week. Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, is with us, and he's got some developing news just happening, actually. Good morning, Reggie. Hey, good morning. Yes, developing uh, quite literally in the last 10 minutes here. We have found out that uh, in the series of uh, legal issues that the former president, Donald Trump, is facing, we now know that the uh, the situation in Florida linked to his uh, alleged mishandling of classified documents is going to go to trial and that is going to happen in May of 2024, putting it right in the middle of a clash uh, with primary season. This goes far beyond what the government was wanting. The special counsel wanted December 11th. The Trump team wanted to wait until after the 2024 election. Uh, ultimately here, what we have, though, is the first uh, court date on paper risk that it gets pushed down the road. We have to wait to see what goes on. But but this is this is a development that the Trump team is ultimately not going to like. And that is the story that just keeps developing, though, Reggie. It doesn't feel, seem like what day it is. It's going, there's going to be an update. I'm, I'm surprised they can keep track of all the different court dates and all the different states where things are happening. Yeah, and, and look, there's also uh, a development not just in Florida. There's also a development uh, in Georgia in the case where uh, Fulton County District Attorney uh, Fannie Willis is moving forward with her own investigation into the former president's attempts to overturn the 2020 election. There's reporting from The Guardian this morning that suggests uh, that the district attorney is going to be be looking uh, at pursuing racketeering charges against the former president, uh, which needs two underlying crimes. And we understand that to be uh, linked to computer crimes with how a Trump paid lawyer was accessing a voter data system and uh, witness interference, which was when Donald Trump held that phone call looking for 11,000 and change votes. Obviously, that would then coincide with what's going on with the special counsel's uh, investigation, which we are quite literally waiting for a potential indictment that could come down at any day here in D.C. Okay, and also let's talk a little bit, was it Michigan, where they moved this week to charge the people who had posed as fake electors? Yeah, and this is a this is a big deal. Now, I t we I was speaking with a, a former federal prosecutor earlier this week and said, "Look, is this going to have any impact on what the special counsel is doing?" And he said, "No, the special counsel is likely going to leave this all encompassing into around Donald Trump and what happens at the state level in other investigations uh, may simply kind of factor into the outlier." But this is a big deal because this plays into that that kind of Trump state level pressure campaign back in 2020 to try and get himself to stay in power by having 
having fake electors put up in uh, battleground states like Michigan. It also is an issue in Arizona. But these people are now facing felony charges uh, for um, kind of going against what the law is when it comes to election rules. There's more than a dozen of them. They allegedly met in a basement, signed these bogus papers that they were going to try to give to then Vice President Mike Pence yeah, to announce. They weren't look, electors. They were not electors. They, they, they were not, not been yeah, chosen. They, they had not been chosen, and they, they signed this paper anyways, thinking that they'd be able to sway Mike Pence's decision. Crazy on keeping Donald Trump in power. He obviously didn't do that. And now these people are facing a series of crimes. That's crazy that they just thought they could get together and do that. And, oh, we'll pose as electors and what? Nobody's going to check. Well, and look, this speaks to a broader issue here that points back to Donald Trump and his legal team at the time in all of the schemes that they were trying to do to keep Trump in power, all based on fraudulent and bogus claims of election fraud. Okay, and you have to explain to me, Reggie, what is going on with this Robert Kennedy's like you still see see these videos, you see these stories, you read about things that he has said, you see him talking about things and then he tries to say that he never said those things. And it's just getting so confusing. Like, why does he get so much attention? Well, because he is, at the end of the day, a presidential candidate who's pulling in 20 percent in some polls uh, of of the Democratic voter base. Um, And, and, you know, there are some people who are concerned that, you know, this is giving him a megaphone to kind of talk about these bananas not realistic viewpoints on things um, like the COVID vaccine um, and COVID itself. But ultimately, what we have here is a challenger to Joe Biden, uh, who, number one, was testifying before Congress yesterday at this kind of subcommittee on the weaponization of government, um, you know, spewing nonsense uh, and kind of potentially damaging theories uh, and conspiracies about vaccines and about, you know, a whole list of things. And ultimately, um, you know, he's playing to a, p- a particular audience here, possibly independents, possibly into Republicans that he may be able to pull away from Donald Trump. Uh, but, you know, this morning, his own grandson is coming out trying to disavow him and, and say, look, he does not speak for the Kennedy family here. But at the end of the day, he does have a lot of Republican support. And that was evident yesterday when he was testifying. Right. But he does seem to appear at a lot of Republican events. He does appear at a lot of Republican events. And then he has to, you know, deal with the fact that what he says then needs to be walked back or he fights with people to say, look, I didn't say that, even though a lot of what he said uh, is, is on recorded. camera. Yes. Yeah, based, it's what we saw with the New York Post stuff last week, where he was talking about COVID being kind of a, a biochemical weapon. And, you know, he said, I didn't say that his words are on tape. Okay, that's the one that also gets my head shaking. Now, let's talk about Florida, because we can't leave without talking about Florida. This story about the Florida, the Board of Education there with the new guidelines for teaching black American history. uh, I'm sorry, they're trying to teach that there were what positives were there about slavery? Well, yes. I mean, this this is kind of part and parcel of a broader effort by Florida's governor and Florida's government uh, to rewrite the curriculum to to get rid of kind of a quote unquote woke ideology or woke, woke orthodoxy here. And they're trying to say, look, we can teach that slavery, uh, you know, had benefits to black Americans because it may have, quote unquote, you know, taught them trades that they may not have learned otherwise. And critics are pointing out saying, look, they could have learned these trades had they not been pulled away from their families and shackled up on boats and then sold to the highest bidder in America. And, you know, this this is facing sharp criticism. It is not the first time that Florida's governor has enacted, um, you know, curriculum across the state that is going to potentially try to whitewash or overlook, uh, you know, issues that are affecting the social fabric of that state. And it's a part of a more broad effort amongst the United States to get a more conservative ideology put into uh, the education system, whether it's in California, whether it is in parts of the Midwest, uh, where K to 12 students are now being taught what a certain fragment of a politicized population wants them to learn, not what the realities of the world might be. Okay, and very quickly, there's another story out of Florida, but this one has to do with chicken nuggets, and I got—I have to ask you about this. Uh, $800,000 for a girl who was eating chicken McNuggets. It fell on her lap. It burned her. She got a, a burn mark on her leg. Uh, the family sued where they wanted $15 million in compensation. Ultimately, uh, the franchisee, the company, uh, $800,000 was awarded to this girl. It goes back to the 90s when somebody spilled hot, hot coffee. coffee on them. Themselves and you know they they were awarded. Uh, the family says, "Look, we didn't think that the food would be this hot," uh, and ultimately a jury sort of sided with them and and gave them nearly a million dollars for for 
hot food being too hot. Well, I, I did see the picture, and it was quite a burn. Those it, are I some mean, hot chicken nuggets. Yeah, I mean, it's a hot chicken McNugget, but yeah. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, do people prefer hot food, or would they then prefer cold food that they then have to complain about? I mean, you lose either way, apparently, if you're McDonald's. Oh, you get warm food. You're right. You're right. Okay, Reggie, thank you so much for that. <laughs> thank you. That's Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. That was a true story. I know it sounds made up. Absolutely a true story. The pictures and everything. This is Mornings with Simi. Do you ever have that feeling that you are being watched? Oh, you're probably right, actually. And that's what our Scott Shantz has been looking at. Yeah, but where are we being watched, Scott? Yeah, Simi, I think that I am about to freak out you and probably, probably a not huge... Po- no? no? Okay, well, we'll see. We'll see. And a huge portion of other people, because I found this pretty shocking. So we've heard lots of talk about, oh, hidden cameras in Airbnb units. That's kind of been in the news here and there. You know, it's like, oh, if you go to an Airbnb, shine a flashlight around and maybe you'll find some sort of hidden camera and stuff. So I got in touch to find out more about this with Steve Parker. He's a counter surveillance expert. He owns tapsweep.com. And he told me that there is an entire other segment of the market that is huge and that no one is really talking about. The corporate the espionage work or these things being put in, uh, in, in offices, it's a lot more common than people realize. And one of the main reasons is you just have to look at how many products are available and how inexpensive they are. And you can buy them online. You can buy them at uh, various hardware stores. You can buy them even at, uh, you know, toy stores, uh, computer stores. They're everywhere. So if someone is buying these things and someone's using it, um, if they can sell a device for $50 that works exceptionally well compared to what was maybe $10,000 uh, 25 years ago, it's because people are buying them. How easy is it to, to set a hidden camera up? Um, very easy. Uh, if you go back to something, uh, we'll just say not a camera, but um, a, a monitor, like a, a bugging device. Um, uh, you look at a baby room monitor. That's essentially what a lot of these things are. So it's as simple as like just setting it up and putting the channel on. Cameras are just as easy, uh, and you can buy them already made, put into a smoke detector, into a iPhone charger, into a clock radio. They're already made that way. So essentially, what you're doing is you're just plugging it in and pointing it. People are putting these things in offices. Yeah, and um, and that's 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 the majority of my business offices and boardrooms. I mean, eavesdropping and, and sort of espionage kind of worry, like corporate espionage kind of thing is. Uh, uh, bottom line is there's a lot of money involved, right? If you, if you uh, we'll say an example, go to, uh, you're in litigation and, you, and you're talking to a, uh, your lawyer, the other side can hear everything that you're discussing, all your strategies, what you have and what you don't have and what you're going to do and how much you'll settle for. Or, or That's a huge advantage. For a $50 device, that can be worth millions of dollars when push comes to shove in the courtroom. There's an incentive there, unfortunately. So how how do they get a listening device into those places? Um, many ways. Uh, sometimes it's people who work there. Um, sometimes it's uh, someone coming in uh, and giving it to somebody else, which is say a cleaner. It's like, oh, can you uh, plug this power bar into the uh, boardroom? They need it for the next thing. And the, and the person just says yes, and they plug it in, and it has a listening device in it. Uh, sometimes they've been in there for other things and they leave it behind. Um, there's things taped underneath boardroom tables. There's things in the ceiling. Sometimes there's a common hallway between offices. And uh, I've seen things up there where you can you notice that someone's been up there. Oh, someone's poked a hole in there. Oh, someone's poked a little thing through there to the boardroom. And that's another way. Another way is gifts. You know, and uh, I've been to offices where, oh, look at this great gift I got from my competitor. It's it's beautiful. Um, trophy or something like that or a picture or an ornament and immediately i go if you've taken a good look at this thing yet so i can take a look at it i can see if it's transmitting or anything like that but so these you know these these are the it's really easy to get it in when when there's a will is a way it makes you nervous to like want to say anything in public you know or do anything in public yeah. yeah how how careful should we be about this stuff it's it's a very big, big, big question because it's all those different examples. There's the personal level, there's the voyeur level, there's the uh, litigation level, there's even just between two people uh, wanting to know what someone else is doing or thinking. Um, 
most of the people I've talked to over the years, and even the ones who are in this business and a bit more science-backed, uh, will say the same thing. It's that gut feeling sometimes. You really don't know why. But if you're uncertain, there's lots of different ways of doing things. Um, you know, if you're really worried about talking to your lawyer on your phone because you're going through a divorce, well, don't do it in your office or the kitchen or the living room or your bedroom. Do it in the basement. No one's, if someone's going to put a device in, they're not going to put a device in a basement or a laundry room. Um, they're probably not going to put a listening device inside a bathroom, you know? So if you're really not certain, you don't want to have to think about it. Just don't make a phone call in most obvious, most normal places that someone would think you're going to be making that phone call or same thing with changing. If you're going to, you know, worried about uh, being seen uh, naked and it's not your place, well, turn the lights off, you know, or, um, do it in the closet or, you know, or, or laundry room or something, you know, Someone has to place something somewhere. Where would they place it if they're trying to find information? Okay, figure that out. Go somewhere else. Simi, they're watching us. Yeah, that didn't surprise me in the slightest, Scott. Really? See, and maybe this is like the Pollyanna thing about me where I'm just like, no, people wouldn't do that. Like, you have all of these little gifts and trinket and award things on your desk. They're watching you. They're listening to you. Okay. That doesn't accept, bother you? Well, I, I assume it happens everywhere anyway. I, I'm, you know, been around long enough where I remember how horrified we all were when we realized that on your work email, the company can read all of it. Now, I have always assumed that they are reading everything. And I'm just, I'm not singling out any company. I just think every company out there, if you have work email, probably has some kind of filter on it where they get alerts for certain hold, words hold and all I that kind of stuff. I just want to understand this properly. The company is reading my email? No, I don't know that. I just assume that. <laughs> sure. I assume that for any place that you work that has work email that right. you use, you should always assume that they can read your email. We're living in a surveillance state. I'm not saying they do. <laughs> I'm saying they could if they wanted to. They're watching us right always now. Always assume, Scott. Always assume. Uh, that's our Scott Chance. If you want to weigh in, maybe you know about this. Maybe this happened to you. Let's hear about it. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. What is it going to take to make this stop? This week, we saw another truck hitting an overpass in the lower mainland. This time, it was that large truck colliding with the overpass on Highway 99, just south of the tunnel. And boy, did it ever result in substantial damage. In just about the last two years, there have been something like 21 overpass strikes on provincial highways. That seems like a high number, doesn't it? So what is it going to take to get through to trucking companies that they need to take this seriously? Well, Rob Fleming is with us now, BC's Minister of Transportation, to talk about that. Thank you for being here. My pleasure, Simi. Thanks for having me. So what's going to happen in this latest case then? Will there be fines? What's going to happen? Uh, That's under investigation right now. We don't know whether uh, this was negligence or whether there was a mechanical failing in in the vehicle. So... I really ought not to comment, won't comment until that investigation is complete, but certainly in the other incidents that you mentioned, the 21 examples going back a couple of years, uh, there have been cases where gross driver error, um, even carriers, the the same carrier has been responsible for multiple occasions, uh, have been the source of the problem. And as your listeners know, when that happens on an average afternoon, traffic backs up congestion is horrendous uh in this case uh the 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 damage that was sustained in the overpass was significant you know there's a couple of steel girders that are twisted and damaged um we had to close the highway we had to do safety inspection before um the asset could be used again in our in our infrastructure network but there's two approaches that we're taking uh, because we don't like what we're seeing Um, first of all we're tracking the data and everybody can judge which companies uh, have been involved in these types of things. So that's on the ministry's website now. Uh, we're also uh, actioning uh, steeper fines. Um, you know, we do we do need deterrence, and we have to make it a lot more expensive, and we need to, con- we, we are going to implement uh, not, not just higher fines and steeper penalties, longer suspensions, all those sorts of things. But you know, the industry itself is perplexed, and I have to say, when we talk about these things, um, it, you know, to be balanced, you know, 99.99% of commercial truck drivers out there go about moving goods throughout our region safely every single day. And the BC Trucking Association and their member carriers 
are good business operators. They are good drivers, but we have obviously an element that we need to uh, reach with more education. I, I hate to say that because I don't yeah. want to give an excuse. There is no excuse. You measure your load. You're aware of height restrictions on our infrastructure. It's really easy, Simi. There's digital tools there. We have one. We have a height clearance tool on our Drive BC website that most drivers use. Every driver should use. TransLink has a really good one. They have a truck route planner. It's super easy. It's a digital tool, and it tells you the height restriction on every piece of infrastructure on municipal and uh, provincial highways in Metro Vancouver. Okay, so there's really no excuse from the way you describe no it there. Excuse. So yeah. are, are the fines that you talk about then, are they going to be for the drivers or for the companies or both? Uh, they'll be for the drivers. So it'll be, you know, like anybody who has a license. Um, and if you have a commercial license, uh, it'll go against you. Um, whether the company assists you in paying it or not, I, I can't speak to that. But uh, the company, if they're found at fault, um, you know, if, it, if it's, a, it's a vehicle issue, condition of the vehicle, um, they'll be part of the investigation as well. And uh, our decisions usually flow out of whatever evidence we gather, of course. How much are we talking about here? Like, clearly, it has to be a deterrent. Mm-hmm. Um, well, right now, uh, let's put it this way. If there is damage sustained and after a third-party insurer uh, and their, their liability limits are reached and there's excess cost, uh, absolutely the Ministry of Transportation and Infrastructure goes after uh, the full cost uh, when we have determined you know, negligence and that the company and, and or commercial operator are at risk or were at fault. Uh, we go after the full cost of repair. Oh, you do? Has that ever happened before where you have managed to recover that money? I think, yes, uh, we have gone after them. Uh, we, you know, we use the legal system and uh, make claims. And, uh, you know, there are, there are incidents where we have reached agreements with the carriers to recover the damages that we've paid. Because, look, we're in the business of building and maintaining infrastructure. And when these sorts of things happen, like... Uh, it, it, it puts all of that at risk. I mean, we're, we're investing, we have, I think, $6.4 billion worth of uh, SkyTrain investments. So we have a $1.3 billion Patello Bridge that will be opening this time next year. We have uh, highway widening projects uh, in Langley through to the Fraser Valley that are um, being built uh, as we speak. So we're in the business of building infrastructure, not seeing it destroyed through carelessness. Um, I will say, though, um, if there are driver education ideas, and we're talking to the BC Trucking Association and others, uh, we'll pursue those. We do have you know, multilingual communications tools. We are going to follow up with this incident by reaching every class one driver in the province uh, to talk about the height restriction issue. But we shouldn't be needing to remind people. That's just a proactive step we're going to take. But no, we need the 99.99% of good, safe commercial drivers to be 100% all the time. Yeah, you mentioned that there are just some things you're going to be taking action on. Like, what are those mm-hmm. items and when will they happen? Yeah, so uh, fines and penalties are happening now. Uh, I actioned that earlier this year. We're just uh, having uh, Legislative Council uh, complete the work uh, to bring that into force. Uh, so that was that was happening uh, long before this incident um occurred, but uh, that will um, be significantly steeper and more punitive. And the education is ongoing. Uh, you know, spreading knowledge about the tools that we have uh, is, a, is a joint uh, initiative that we have with industry. Uh, but we're also going to look at uh, some, some tougher things like longer suspensions for drivers. So we need deterrence, as I mentioned, uh, I don't think we need a lot of carrots here, but we are going to do some education initiatives. Uh, we always should. We always do. The Commercial Vehicle Safety Enforcement Unit is out on our roads doing that each and every day. How this happens, though, uh, I have to say it's, it's almost beyond me. I, I cannot well, understand it. I think it. that's you're with everybody else on that one because that's the same reaction yeah. we all have is like you're yeah. right. Is The very first thing you worry about is am I can I take this on the highway? Is it going to fit under all the places that I have to go? Mm-hmm. How does that happen? It, I, <laughs> right? Again, I say it's almost beyond me because there are so many easy digital tools. Um, it's part of you know driver education. It's it's posted. It's available digitally. It's 
part of um, the permitting process. If you have an oversized load, you have you're, you are permitted, and it is carefully explained. You go through in detail what route you will follow. In this incident, we don't know yet. Uh, was it a mechanical failure that uh, lifted the back of the truck, uh, or was it driver error? We don't know, and I, I, I'm not going to prejudge that. I'm going to let the investigation run its course. How long do those generally take, those investigations? Oh, I think it'll be completed pretty soon. Um, they, they don't typically take too long. They take longer if it's a RCMP investigation that's you know had a, has a tragic outcome. Uh, this this had a bad outcome in terms of what it did to our uh, transportation network on that day, uh, but it's going to be a, a safety investigation. Do you find that the trucking industry, like they are helpful when this happens? I know no industry likes more regulation, but it does feel like this is one of those areas where it's like, listen, if it's not going to happen on its own, we need to make it happen somehow. Uh, yeah. In this instance, the BC Trucking Association, which is you know the largest organization of the industry, has uh, clearly said, please, um, more compliance, more enforcement, uh, steeper steeper penalties. We consulted them on that before I uh, pursued a, an adjustment uh, and a dramatic improvement on the fine and s- suspension regime that we have in BC. Uh, look, on, 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 in this instance, uh, it wasn't just commuters that were stuck behind the snarled traffic. It was other commercial well, vehicle yeah. operators. So it's costing their companies time and money, and you know it affects everybody. Well, I look forward to hearing the results of that investigation. I think a lot of commuters do. Uh, thank you so much for your time on that. Okay, Simi, my pleasure. That's Rob Fleming, BC's Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure. Obviously frustrated, as we all are, when you hear about another truck hitting another overpass. Of course, earlier this week, that caused just traffic chaos and mayhem on Highway 99. And yeah, we want to know, how do you absolutely make sure that does not happen again? But you're lost to think, how did it even happen in the first place, right? This is Mornings with Simi. Vancouver Whitecaps are back in action tonight, as a matter of fact. And the coach, Fanny Sartini, is with us now. Good morning, coach. Morning, Simi. How are you? I am good. Thank you. Are you all ready? It's game day. Yeah, it's uh, it's strange to talk with you on game day. We rarely play on Friday. I so know. It's nice. yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm excited about this. Okay, so this is a little bit different, though, right? This is a Champions League game. Uh, League's Cup game. Uh, League's it's, Cup game. Um, yeah, it's a new tournament that they... Uh, basically, they launched this this season. It's uh, all the MLS teams and uh, all the Mexican teams. So the league is on pause for a month, and we will play this uh, this tournament. Uh, let's say World Club uh, World Cup style, and we'll start uh, tonight playing uh, Leon. Uh, that is uh, a very strong Mexican team. Okay, so this is something brand new. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's. Uh, it's the first time that they try to do it. It's like uh, uh, the the league, uh, the leagues. I would say both the, our league and the Mexican league. They believe a lot in this because it can, of course, uh, enlarge the the fan base, uh, having more international games. So yeah, we we are actually excited about it. Yeah, yeah that's kind of cool because the league itself is on pause. So there's no MLS games this month. It, we're all, we're playing all of these leagues cup games. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the they wanted to to create something in the in the schedule where we we put this cap as a kind of a, I would say a main thing for uh, right. for uh, for for uh, for us and uh, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be it's gonna be exciting for sure. Coach, does it change the way the team prepares for this then? Because is it a different style of play? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit, like uh, playing uh, international position, playing teams that you don't know, of course, uh, brings you to try something new. And also the fact that uh, the league stops for, for a month has been very demanding so far. We played a lot of games. Some of the guys uh, maybe uh, need a little, uh, I would say, stop. And uh, so it's also a chance to give... give uh, opportunity to to other players that maybe play a little less uh, during the season so far. Well, I am looking forward to it. Listen, have fun tonight. 
Fantastic. Thank you. That's Vanny Sartini, coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. It is a League's Cup game tonight, 7.30. It's a home game. And you know what? MLS play is on pause because of this League's Cup tournament. They are playing Club Leon from the Mexican team. Part of this whole new effort that the MLS is making. It's going to be a lot of fun. So check it out. Remember, all Whitecaps games, home and away, you can catch on our sister station, AM 7.30. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about astronomy right now, because once again, there has been this astounding new discovery, and there is a close connection to us right here at home. In fact, it's a UBC astronomer who has helped out with this huge project that involves finding the clues to the origins of our universe. So I'm not going to explain it to you because... I wouldn't do a very good job of it, but that's why we have our next guest to do that for us. It's Dr. Jeremy Heil, who's a professor of physics and astronomy at UBC and Canada Research Chair of Black Holes and Neutron Stars. What a cool title. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me. So tell me about this discovery. What did you find? Well, what what we found uh, was a a white dwarf, which is the remnant of a star like our sun, And usually on the surface of white dwarfs, what you see is hydrogen gas, which is the most common element in the universe. Uh, And then there's a fraction of them that you see helium gas, which is the next most common uh, element in the universe. But this white dwarf is kind of odd. It doesn't exactly know what to do because what we see is, is this object, this dead star, it rotates every 15 minutes. Uh, which is really fast. If you imagine it's about 3,000 kilometers in radius. So it's a bit smaller than the Earth, but it's the mass of a star. And one side of the star is covered in hydrogen, and the other side of the star is covered in helium. So for seven minutes, we see mainly hydrogen, and the hydrogen entirely disappears. And then for another seven minutes, more or less, we see the helium side of the white dwarf. So it's it's uh, it's a white dwarf sort of maybe in transition from being uh, having hydrogen on its surface to, to helium on its surface, but it's just a, a, a crazy puzzle on top of that. And so why are white dwarfs so important? Because I know they're used to test a lot of things, aren't they? Yeah, so most stars, meaning, you know, 97 out of 100 stars will become a white dwarf at, at the end of their, their lives. And when the white dwarf is, uh, there's no nuclear burning on the white dwarf anymore, and it basically just cools with time. So they can be a great clock because we can tell by how hot the white dwarf is at this moment, uh, how long it's been cooling. So we can use it to measure if we had a white dwarf that was born very early in the history of the universe, we can use how long it's been cooling to measure the age of the universe, or we can use white dwarfs to measure the ages of other stars if the white dwarf has a companion. Uh, But one thing that white dwarfs do as they cool, some of them, is they start out when they're very young to have helium on their surface, and then uh, then gradually they f- you find that they have hydrogen on their surface for a little bit longer, or this is what we infer, and then later on it resumes having helium on the surface. And we think that has to do with there's this stage in the life of the white dwarf where the surface starts to bubble and we call that convection, and we mix helium up to the surface again and uh, dilute the hydrogen. So in this, but we never can see a white dwarf right. kind of in the middle of doing this change until this guy. So this particular white dwarf we think is in the middle of the change from being hydrogen back to helium, and because of Perhaps the magnetic field on the white dwarf is a bit stronger in some spots than others. Parts of the white dwarf manage to do this boiling motion and mix helium up to the top, and other parts don't. So it's sort of like we're seeing the moment Clark Kent jumps into the (laughs) phone booth and turns into Superman. Uh, If we didn't see that part of the movie, 
you would think they were two different people, although they all look exactly the same usually. But, but that's what we're seeing in this white dwarf, this moment of transition. Uh, so it's right. pretty exciting. Uh, first of all, excellent comic book analogies to make it so that we could all understand it. Thank you very much for that. Appreciate it. Uh, so this, it does sound like it is very rare then. Have we seen or found something like this before? Well, we've seen some white dwarfs where we see both hydrogen and helium in their atmospheres. And we've seen one where it's sometimes a bit more hydrogen and sometimes a bit less. But this is the first time where we've seen one where one side, one hemisphere of the white dwarf is all hydrogen and the other hemisphere is all helium. And that it changes back and forth like clockwork, just because the star is rotating every 15 minutes. So this is a first. Uh, this, this white dwarf is pretty far away as far as white dwarfs are concerned. It's about a thousand light years away. So it, it really is a, a special find. So what happens now, like now that you found it, this, and, and what, do you, what questions do you still have? What do you do now? Well, in particular, like, why is it happening, right? So why is the white dwarf, uh, why does one side of it show hydrogen and the other show helium? And we think it has to do with there being a magnetic field on the white dwarf. So it would be great to do measurements to try to measure that magnetic field. It would also be our, our view of the white dwarf is really restricted to light that in the range that we can see, so visible light, it would be really great to follow this up in the ultraviolet where we think most of the energy of the white dwarf is coming out. Uh, and that would be something we would have to do with the, the Hubble Space Telescope because that's our, our one ultraviolet telescope that we have uh, out in space. So that would be another great thing to follow up so we can really understand uh, the big picture on this white dwarf. It's really exciting. So is it just that they're so, they have been so difficult to find? Is this new technology that's allowing us to do this? Yeah, so this particular white dwarf we discovered because there's uh, an experiment uh, down at the Palomar Observatory, which is near San Diego, where they take uh, image of a large portion of the sky every couple days, again and again and again. So we can look for objects whose brightness is changing. And that's how this sky was discovered. It was noticed that this object's brightness was changing, uh, in fact, about every 15 minutes. And, uh, and so this was a new thing. But going forward, this is a capability that we're going to have more and more of with uh, what's called the Vera Rubin Observatory. We'll be taking pictures of most of the sky every night. So it will be pretty amazing. We'll have this movie of the sky, and that'll allow us to discover lots more of these interesting objects. Well, I look forward to hearing more about it. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Yeah, well, thank you for having me.